Welcome to Bandit's Keep. This is Daniel. So, I'm back. We'll see. No, I'm definitely back. Uh, I have been away, and it looks like on February 27th, I put together a podcast that was a reply to some call-ins I had, and then I never made it public. So I have basically, you know, a short but full episode of call-ins, which will follow this intro. So there'll be another intro later. Um, But I also had some new stuff to say. So uh, excuse the noise if you can hear it. I'm kind of walking on a trail kind of near a river um, near my house and trying to enjoy the, the warm weather we're finally getting here in New York. So I want to talk a little bit about Unchained, which is now basically going to be the name of both of my <laughs> OD&D with Chainmail hacks, uh, Unchained, and then maybe Unchained, Simplified, or Accelerated, maybe, like, like Fate, um, which will be the, the one with the, the heroes, right? So we've been playing the OD&D with Chainmail hack, Unchained, the full, or a full version, for, I think we're in 11 or 12 sessions now. I did some session reports. I remember that, doing that in February. But as it turns out now, we've played a bunch more times and the characters are up, I think, third, fourth, or fifth level. Uh, you know, it's four characters. I think two of them are fourth level. And when, but anyways, they're getting to be very powerful. I'm curious how this will work out <laughs> because they're reaching the point now where, you know, 10... Or, or 20 even, one-hit die monsters are barely a threat to them. So they can slice through them in the awesome uh, high fantasy or maybe sword and sorcery, but badassery that is, you know, this kind of stuff, which I love. I know that some people often put down some of the latest versions of RPGs saying they're two superheroes, but I, I feel like OD&D, especially with Chainmail, is very much... Uh, possible it's it's very much possible to be super heroic and re- honestly there's nothing wrong with that it is still very binary though and it's interesting because if you're playing a character that's let's say fourth level and you're a fighter so you're a hero you're fighting as four men you're using a sword you're fighting let's say against these like you know kobolds or whatever you're just chopping through them and they can barely touch you especially if you have armor on but if they get lucky they could take you out and when they do, it just happens, right? It's like the combat's going fine, it's going in your direction, then all of a sudden, boom, those eight kobolds between them roll, you know, four sixes. And now you're down, you're dead, that's it, gone, character dead. Without some kind of uh, immediate healing spell, which is not super common, of course. Um, yeah, that's the end of your character. And it might seem super abrupt. We kind of had it happen when Nikki was running her campaign at the very end, one of the characters that was fourth level died in like one of the final combats and it was kind of that like whoa what because <laughs> up to that point you feel almost invulnerable but in any case that's uh, of course in troop combat in uh fantasy combat and of course in man-to-man combat which is a whole other thing um that's a little different but you know troop combat's what i've mostly been using so anyways there is a couple of new things that i want to talk about one of which is a death save, for lack of a better word, mechanic that I've been kind of implementing. And I'm pretty sure I haven't figured out how I want to do it, but I want to throw it out there for any comments. Uh, I know I said death save, and if people listen to this and they're OSR people, they're just like, oh, death save. <laughs> but hear me out. <laughs> it, when you look at like a fighter, let's say you take your fighter, your, your magic user, and your cleric. If we look at them at first level, they all have one hit die. So 
you're still in that same situation. I know that the, the fighter can wear better armor, but not better armor than the cleric. You're still in the situation where the fighter gains no advantage. And if I've learned one thing about OD&D with Chainmail is that fighters should be the most, the most awesome characters. I mean, it was really designed that way. So what I've decided is if you have any kind of a bonus to your hit die, so let's say you're one plus one like a fighter would be on first level, or you are, I don't know, a troll, so you're six plus three, what will happen is if you get enough hits that take you down, you get to roll a six-sider, and if you roll a one on that six-sider, then you are not dead. It's basically luck came in, your heroics have paid off, whatever you want to call it, you can narrate it however you like, but you survive that below, like nothing happened. Now, this is, of course, is only in troop combat, not in man-to-man or fantasy, and I think it works out pretty well. The one place that I'm kind of debating, which is uh, kind of, I guess, what I'd like some feedback on, is, I guess I can't go this way, the path has collapsed. <laughs> um, so basically, there's this giant log that I'm walking on. I was hoping to get around this other giant log that fell over, but I feel like uh, that would be a bad idea at this point. Wow, the river's really full. It's, you know, springtime is coming. In any case, um, if if you have, let's say, your, your, I don't know, I forget what level magic user or fighter it is, but at some point you get to have, like, plus two. I'm wondering if that plus two should allow you to throw that many dice. So we'll take a troll, because I know that off the top of my head. A troll is six plus three hit dice. So I'm thinking you score six hits to take the troll down. I'm talking about in uh, troop combat, of course. And it rolls 3d6, because it's six plus three. And if it gets any ones on that, not dead. So (laughs) it's a little bit like oosh, but it also adds an extra mechanic that we can use as a dungeon master creating monsters, right? If we want to do that effect that some systems have with, let's say, zombies, where they might come back even even when you chop off part of them, you could give the zombie one plus one hit dice, right? So then it has a one in six chance it's going to bounce back up. So it's a really easy mechanic to implement. I'm up in the air about if I'm going to have it be multiple dice, if it's plus something like one plus two or three plus one, well, three plus one would be one, but like one plus two, do they roll two dice? I'm definitely not going to do it 5e style where it's like one die per round until they use up all their dice. It's going to either be, it's a one-time thing. Basically, you get hit, you roll it. So it's either going to be you roll one die or you roll a number of dice equal to the plus. And if any of those are ones, you're still up. Fate has kept you alive as it would be. So I'd love to hear some feedback on that. So, what else have I got brewing? Well, if you remember, if you've listened to the podcast before, up to this point, I've mentioned it before, that the elf uh, in my world is of two spirits, and this and that, and then I talked about the idea of the dwarven race being wiped out, and my friend Nikki was working on a, a dwarf, effectively, that our replacement dwarf, we, we were talking about it, and then she said, I'll write that up, so she kind of put together some ideas for a dwarf race, basically they've been driven underground, for over 3,000 years. I'm going uphill now, guys, so if I'm breathing heavy. Um, And in that time, they have changed. They've lost all their hair. Their skin has turned pale white. They're effectively blind. Not effectively blind, they are blind. But they've got tremendous other senses, including a tremor sense that allows them to see um, pretty well when they're underground to 60 feet, basically. But when they step out into the open air, uh, they're basically, they're not completely blind, but they're really thrown off. These dwarves are not, they can't use any missile weapons. They can, however, use thrown weapons up to 30 feet. So they've got some penalties, basically, and some benefits to go with. 
It's been really fun role-playing it. I mean, a character with amazing smell, amazing, you know, uh, like a tremor sense, amazing hearing can be super useful in the dungeon, and it's come up a bunch, where effectively what I've done is given the dwarf the same thing as the elf has with secret doors. It's a one in four instead of a one in two for listening at doors, and whenever it's relevant, I mean, sometimes she'll be like, oh, do I feel anything on the ground, blah, blah. So if it seems like it makes sense, I, I let her roll for it. So it's been pretty cool. I like these dwarves. I like the idea of using the dwarves in my game that are different than your standard dwarves people expect. And, you know, maybe they could run across a strange land where the old-style dwarves are still in existence. I mean, who knows if people really want to play dwarves. But I think I like this idea of all my demi-humans being slightly different. We did have a halfling in the game earlier, and we just used him like a straight halfling because... We hadn't changed anything yet, so <laughs> maybe I'll make my own version of the halfling slash hobbit. We'll have to see what those what the rights are there. Maybe I'll call them hibbits or something <laughs> to uh, to work that out. But yeah, that's basically what's going on. So I do have a couple of newer calls, and I'll just do those one first for convenience sake since I'm recording here, and then I will play the old episode. And I guess maybe if I have final thoughts, I will then be back again. Hey Daniel, hey Daniel, this is Rob, also known as Minion. Um, really enjoyed the last episode. It's great to hear everybody having so much fun at Gary Con, and I wish I could be there at some point um, and join you all. The game sound great, brilliant. Um, love your energy and um, the enjoyment that you're getting from those old rules of uh, Chainmail and OD&D. It's just um, really uh, interesting and quite exciting, I, I hope maybe uh, to be able to play in um, one of those games soon but I'm also really looking forward to before I forget I'm really looking forward to the um, to the rules shaping up and changing a little bit the the combat rules for OD&D the chainmail combat rules so um, yep always uh, happy to hear that stuff um, I'm sure there was something else I wanted to mention but uh, you know how it is uh, anyway cheers and uh, take care now Thanks, Rob. Yeah, it's, it's weird, to, honestly. I, I, you know, because I have no nostalgia for OD&D. I didn't play it when I was a kid. Um, I could say I went into BX being nostalgic, but man, I just really love this OD&D chainmail uh, rule set. And yeah, I've got a few tweaks to the rules, and I'm going to work on them. And then maybe I'll try to get in a, a game together with the anchorites, whoever is interested in playing. We could do a, a short, uh, you know, three or four session campaign, see how the rules go, uh, have some kind of massive combat uh, at the end or the beginning, because I think that's what makes uh, the the system so fun. Actually, is that you know I never thought in my when I was running five e there was many times that I thought about doing a big combat and I just I just shook my head like oh man it would be such a it would just wouldn't feel right. It's not that you couldn't do it because there are mass combat rules kind of in five e, but it just didn't feel right for that game. You know I I imagine like I was just watching Black Widow last night and I I think of like all the fights that are going on in 5e to be like that movie like these really over the top super heroic people jumping around doing amazing feats but they're not fighting 50 guys against 50 guys it's like a superhero against five people and and that's kind of how i pictured uh, when i ran 5e that game because it was much more high fantasy epic i'm not saying all 5e is that that's just how i ran it but with uh chainmail they're tough and they're strong and they're heroes but they're heroes in a different way. They're heroes, they're Conan standing on top of the hill with an axe, chopping down five guys as they charge him, that kind of hero. So it's a different kind of feel for sure. So uh, thanks for the kind words, and hopefully we get in a game together soon. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Enjoyed your Gary Con recap. Yeah, so 
with a lot of times war games conventions, they do typically do like six to eight players. So that is pretty normal because um, you're trying to maximize the amount of people that can play. And it definitely usually would go faster with lesser players or lower number of players. I was a little bit sad you didn't talk about your encounter with the uh, problematic player. I, I think that could be educational for us as GMs and players on the situations we can encounter and how, how best to deal with those situations, if you can do it in a fairly anonymous way. Just a thought. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, the only other experience I had, because I didn't get to look around and look at tables, was uh, my friend Nikki was in a game, and I think it was only three or four players. That was Warriors of Mars, which looked awesome. And the gentleman runs it every single Gary Con apparently, so I'm going to try to t- get into it next year. But in any case, I digress. What I did think was cool about it, though, unlike an RPG, for instance, like in the Starship, or Rocket Ships game, rather, there was, I think we had each side had like eight or 10 pieces. And when we added a couple extra players, we just divided the pieces up differently. We didn't add more pieces for those players, which I think is pretty cool. You know, if it was an RPG and you're playing, you might have to make a whole new character for them, which might actually add to, you know, the game, make it a different balance or whatever, depending on the game you're playing, right? Um, I suppose if it was a funnel, you could probably get away with that. But in any case, I thought it was pretty cool um, to play in, in a war game for the first time. Insofar as like problematic players, you know, the reason why I didn't get into it was because I think it'd be pretty easy to figure out what game that was. And while there was a bunch of people in it, it you know, there wasn't that many people in it. So I just didn't want to, you know, create any uh, any kind of shade out there on the Internet. So I, I will definitely talk about that. Though I feel like that's a good topic for either a podcast here or a video, um, kind of how I you know, maybe good or bad, dealt with it as a player. And strangely enough, at Gary Khan, I also had a kind of a problem player in one of my games that I GM'd and uh, had to deal with that as well. So, you know, uh, <laughs> which is really funny because I'm that guy that's always like when people show Twitter threads and all sorts of stuff about bad players or problems, I'm always like, are those things even real? I never have those problems. But I think you just got to squash them as soon as they start, which is more or less what I did in both cases. So, yeah, anyways, um, hopefully I'm going to get back to podcasting more years so we can talk about a lot more stuff. But um, uh, you'll catch at the end of this that you left me a message a while back about uh, before we even played Ninja City, and now it's got me wanting to play some uh, some really fun, light RPGs. So hopefully we'll get a chance to do so again soon. Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel, and uh, I've been gone for a while, huh? <laughs> Um, I feel like this has been going around Anchor. Um, a lot of the shows that I listen to, the, the podcasters are kind of slowing down a little bit or missing episodes or maybe it's the time of year. Who knows? But um, in my case, I think it's directly connected to the idea that I was trying to keep the podcast more or less focused on the building of uh, Thews and Thaumaturgy, Thaumaturgy and Unchained, so my two OD&D with Chainmail Hacks. And I reached a point where they just really needed to be playtested. And I did my last few episodes, I put some kind of playtest reports, but I don't know. I don't really like doing those so much. I didn't get a lot of calls. Nobody seemed to respond to them. So I'm guessing that they weren't something somebody was coming to this podcast for. So I do want to try to be a little bit more consistent. So I'm just kind of jumping back in. Plus, I had some calls from Jason. Um, Thanks, Jason. So I figured I would just get back in and talk for a few minutes today and get myself going again. All right, so this is this little segment is going to be inspired by Evil Jeff, um, who also hasn't podcasted in a while, but just popped up with a new one. So um, go check out his podcast, Minions and Musings. 
He talked about a lot of things, but one of the things he talked about was kind of more narrative games, games that have, I guess, less crunch is, is kind of the way I'm, I'm interpreting it. It was a couple of days ago that I listened to it, so if I'm missing something, Evil Jeff, I apologize. But he talks about Fate, and he talks about some of these other games where it's kind of like, instead of building out a superhero character, you kind of uh, have a general idea, and then you solve each individual thing you're trying to accomplish, uh, you know, narratively and using, basically by descriptions and then using the Fate dice and I've heard a lot of great things about Fate. I have not only played once. I was going to say I haven't never played, but I've played tw- no twice, I guess. Once Fate and then once Fate Accelerated. But I couldn't really tell the difference, so maybe I didn't really understand what was going on. It was several years ago. The GM was just trying it out. They had never tried it before, so could be we were all doing it wrong. <laughs> so who knows? But uh, I-, I like that idea. And that's coming through even more when I do some of these quick tests for Unchained, you know, the more the incredibly rules light version. I like the idea that you narrate with the with the referee, the GM, right, is is uh, is narrating with you uh, to the players. That is to create a story, and then when it reaches a point where it's there's true uncertainty, not not a maybe uncertainty, but a true uncertainty, then you roll dice, and the players have a damn good chance of succeeding because they're heroes. and And I think that, that that's the thing, right? I like that. I like that idea. You want that pressure. Um, but at the same time, do we need to be rolling dice constantly? And I find myself, and, and that was one of the things Ilja talked about in one of the games he's in, they don't, the players don't roll the dice at all. So, you know, I'm kind of wondering, like, how bad would that be, right? I've seen lots of games where they're pushing towards the idea where the GM never rolls dice and the players roll all the dice. But I don't know, is the idea of the players not rolling dice? You say what you want to do, the... The GM, if necessary, rolls dice or looks at your skills versus the skill of the opponent or whatever, or the, the skill of the task, and then just tells you whether it works or not. How, I mean, I'm wondering how many people would be okay with that. I, um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's listening to this, watches Harmon Quest, although I believe that they're not going to do another season, which is very sad. But in Harmon Quest, it's kind of like an actual play, but it's not really. I mean, they're, they're, they're playing, but they're not. It's more jokey, and they're, they're kind of a bunch of stand-up comics effectively um, playing Pathfinder. But in any case, the GM there, he rolls all the dice. The players never roll any dice. He just rolls stuff, and he just tells them what the results are. Uh, again, they're not being super rules-heavy, so I don't think that matters as much. But at the same time, you know, it might matter a lot in, like, a Pathfinder game, actually, but um, or 5e or some of the more complex games where you want to know what you rolled for some reason. I, I'm not sure. Again, I'm not, I'm not sure. I guess if you're listening to this, let me know what you think about <laughs> if you'd be able to, no matter the game, how okay would you be with never rolling, you know, and just telling the GM what you want to do and they figure it out. So, and finally, <laughs> this is really short, um, hopefully, um, I thought of it because I pulled it out one more time. There's a game called Warriors of Mars. It's a, it was, apparently there was a cease and desist, so they stopped making it, but it was an early TSR game, which uh, the P- PDF uh, is out there in the web, not legally, of course, because it was cease and desist, but nobody really owns it, so I'm not sure where that falls into but in any case, in that game, and I'm not super familiar with war games, so maybe this is common, when you're doing the mass battle stuff, when you, when you put two people together, like you have five green Martians versus ten men, when they make contact, there's no dice rolled. It just happens to be that when that happens, five of the men die and one green Martian. And that's it. Like, that's just how it works. So I wonder about games like that, where if you just compare numbers and then that just that is the answer. It, maybe, not, maybe that wouldn't work as well in a role-playing game because you don't have as much meta-knowledge. But I, I think it just the idea of it is really interesting. Do we rely way too much on dice 
um, to determine everything? Are we making things more random than they need to be? Should things be more fixed? Like, should the heroes succeed more often? And, you know, because if you think about it, the base thing that most people use now, the D20, is, is if you're rolling one D20, I mean, it's, that's pretty damn random, right? It's, you could roll a one, you could roll a 20. If you're, you could be a first-level character and roll a natural 20, you could be a fifth-level character and roll a one, right? And, and fail at the same task or succeed. So, you know, even with all your modifiers, I'm saying, at a high level. So, yeah, I wonder, though, is, is something like a 2D6 or 3D6 system where, you know, the, the target number is somewhere in the middle for, for a trained person so that they'll succeed most of the time? Does that make more sense? And I think the same thing, too, as far as I'm saying about the D20 is true of a D100 system, like a Call of Cthulhu system, right? You might have an 80% in charm, but that doesn't stop you from rolling a 99, you know, or 100 and fumbling. You know, you, I guess you'd still succeed... Again, I'm not a math wizard, but I guess you'd still succeed 80% of the time. But I'm not even sure that's 100% true because every role is its own thing. So anyways, people that know math better than me can tell me that. Um, let me know, guys know what you think about uh, never rolling. I think that's a really interesting system. And not that there's no dice rolls in the game, but that the GM rolls whenever it's necessary. and The players don't necessarily roll at all. So let me know, um, and we'll see if we can get this thing going again. Hey, Daniel, one more thought on your last podcast episode. Reference Hyboria and the the way the daylight, you know, with the year cycle. That's very interesting, and you're right. It definitely can affect the adventures. And that's something you can do in any setting. It, you know, when you do the change of the seasons, where you have less light and, you know, less daylight, more, more nighttime, or vice versa. So I think that's an interesting aspect. And, and I know different people do lip service to calendars but i wonder how often they incorporate things like that like you know how much daylight you have and then of course the temperatures and 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 all the hardships you get when you get in the rainy season or or winter or you know do you have an adventuring do you have you know back in the day you had campaign seasons right because nobody would want to fight in the winter if they could help it do you have campaign seasons here in, in adventuring i don't know yeah, that's a that's a really good point about the the seasons, right? That's kind of how Pendragon works, right? It's like you do one thing a year, because right then you have like your home time that you do. Um, hmm. I've kind of jammed the adventures into different seasons to kind of make them more challenging. I mean, to be honest, I don't track the weather every day, and I change the rules slightly because it's so cold during some of these adventures that they would be making con checks like every thirty minutes. Or take damage, which is just not possible, right? You're not going to be able to play like that. So my rule was that if they're actually dressed appropriately and moving or have a fire, they don't need to make those checks. Uh, and only once has it come up where somebody basically, somebody effectively got held by, by a creature um, for an extended amount of time and they started taking damage because they were just out there in the freezing cold and they actually died from it. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. And, I mean, we're, right now they're adventuring... It's just completely dark, and, and I love that that worked out that way because when we first started, it was completely light. So, and we're getting close to wrapping up the campaign, so it's kind of a, a very interesting contrast. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Interesting video on timers. Um, yeah, I just, you know, not all mechanics work for all of us. Timers work well in ICRPG when it's run correctly. The key, though, is ICRPG is a more meta game. And it, it's more, you, you know, Hank has his background in video games and whatnot. And 
ICRPG is more in-your-face action game. You can do other kind of games in with, with the system, of course, but what, the way you're talking about using timers, of course, are, are way different. And, you know, not all mechanics should be ported from one game to another. We talked about this with other metagame mechanics as well. So, yeah, ICRPG-style timers may not work well in your BX game, and, and that's okay. But you can still learn something from it the way you're using them behind the DM screen or something like that. If anything else, though, you've got me excited to get back and run ICRPG again. I mentioned that you don't have to do action with ICRPG. I used it to run a Colonial Gothic game for a couple guys, and we had a lot of fun. I've run a couple Colonial Gothic games with it, actually. And, and those are more mystery games, not, you know, lots of actions and timers and things. Although I, I did use those mechanics when appropriate, but... But ICRPG is actually a really flexible game system because it's a toolkit, right? Um, and uh, lately I've been talking about the Black Hack, and the Black Hack's a great game as well. Although, again, it doesn't fit everybody's sensibilities, and I understand the things about Black Hack that you wouldn't like, which is okay. Again, not all games are good for all people. But really, the ICRPG could, could realistically do anything the Black Hack does as well. They're both great toolkits. And, and, and great games to inspire the imagination, which, you, you know, is what we all want, right? So, anyhow, keep up the great work. Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I think that most games, uh, most good games, games I would consider good, I'll say, um, well-made games, I should say, are definitely uh, have modular components. That's that's one of the things that I believe, if I was listing the things that make a good game, and I think that things like the timers or... ICRPGs, uh, you know, this, this whole room's a 13, which I don't super care for, but I, I like the idea of it being very modular. Um, I think that that's really interesting, and the Black Hacks just roll into your stat, makes the game real easy um, to, to, to think of and how you're going to play it. You don't have to really get too crazy. Um, although I don't know that it's that much easier than running a regular game, but I'm also speaking from the position of somebody who's who runs a bunch of games. So for me, you know, it's not hard to run 5e or to run BX or to run OD&D or to run whatever but you know maybe for some people just starting it's easier for them just to to run the black hack i don't know i do like the simple spells there and you know what i do kind of like about rcrpg is that if you are um not have to look this up now to be sure but i'm 99 sure this is true if you're in like a room in the in the things a 13 and somebody's like doing something that requires a saving throw then it's a 13 and i kind of like that i like that the saving throw is attached to the creature not to the character I know that sounds a little bit weird coming from an old school guy, but saving throws are the one thing that I'm kind of up in the air with. I, I like saving throws to have to do with the spell or the creature that's being cast, and then there can be a bonus or penalty based on the character. That's generally my, 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 more, my most current <laughs> uh, iteration of what I like saving throws to be, which is why I removed them from my hack, um, because they're, they're directly related to the monster, because that's the origins. But yeah, I agree. I think that uh, there's lots of great games out there and lots of great systems, and you can take pieces of each one and put them together. I just think that you have to be careful when you grab a piece from a game and stick it in another game because it just might not fit the vibe of that game in your table. So just as a matter of trying it out, if it doesn't work out for you, you can always remove it, right? They're just games and we're supposed to have a lot of fun. Thanks for calling in, Jason. Hey, Daniel. My name is Hardy, H-A-R-D-Y, and I'm a longtime fan of your YouTube channel, and I followed you over here onto Anchor just to get the opportunity to comment on some of the awesome work that you've been doing. I 
wanted to chime in on the whole matter of how many heroes, and I realize that you may have well settled this and kind of moved past it because I'm sure I'm late to the party, but I thought I'd bring something up, which is that there is an old role-playing game called Ars Magica that used what they called a troop style play, troop like a troop of actors or a troop of jugglers, not like soldiers. And in their system, uh, it was very similar to kind of what you've been proposing. Uh, the wizards were the most powerful characters. They were kind of these godlike hermetic mages. Hey, Daniel, this is Hardy calling again. Uh, long time fan, first time caller. Actually, I guess this would be the second time calling. But anyway, um, I, I wanted to share another quick idea uh, with you for your your seers or your sorcerers or whatever. Um, one, one thing that I had been thinking about, uh, I was thinking about doing an adaptation of DCC for a swords and sorcery style game. And the whole question of what to do with mages uh, really kind of seemed problematic to me because obviously spells in that game are super powerful. And the solution that I started to gravitate towards was the idea that if you started out as a mage, you would basically have every mage would start with the cantrip power. So in, in, your, uh, in your world, right, your seer might only start with one spell, which would be cantrip, which Hey Daniel, Jason here. Really enjoyed listening to your recap of Unchained and your latest episode. Great stuff. Very excited to do, play that with you next year. So if I don't talk to you before then, happy holidays. And I hope all goes well. And I do look forward to talking to you shortly after Christmas next week because we're scheduled tentatively to play Ninja City. So I'm looking forward to that. Talk to you soon. Wow, as I was cleaning up, I realized this message was actually from December. <laughs> Sorry, Jason. But yeah, that game of Ninja City was super awesome. Had a lot of fun with that. I know Jason's talked about it on his podcast before. Man, if you run that again, I would definitely get involved in that. Super, super fun. Uh, it's fun playing with the, the people from Anchor, and you are a really great uh, GM for that Ninja City, Jason. So look forward to playing more with you in the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening um, and calling in. Hopefully, well, I definitely will not wait three more months before I do the call-in show again if I get some call-ins or a show period. I definitely got some things to talk about. I want to get Nikki on to talk more about those dwarves, and I want to talk a little bit more about the changes I've made, also some experiences I've had very specifically uh, now that I've played also with, you know, groups of people at cons about uh, Chainmail and OD&D. So if you'd like to leave a message, go ahead and do so using the Anchor app, although I guess that's becoming more and more difficult, so... Uh, We'll have to figure out another way you can do it. But for now, leave me a a message on the Anchor app and uh, we'll talk.